When God wants to describe our relationship to him as his people, he often does so by using a number of different analogies or pictures. There are at least six of these word pictures given to us in the pages of the New Testament. Each one expresses unique truths. Each one has its particular, peculiar contribution to our understanding of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, our relationship to the Lord Jesus is pictured as a shepherd and his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep. In John 10, he is called the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13, he is called the great shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5, he is called the chief shepherd. Jesus owns the flock and he cares for the flock. We are sheep, and our responsibility is to follow the shepherd. That's one picture that comes up several times in the New Testament to depict our relationship to the Lord Jesus. A second picture used to describe our relationship with the Lord Jesus is the metaphor, the picture of the priest and the priesthood. The book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to make sure that we know that Jesus Christ is is our high priest. Hebrews 4 tells us he is a sympathetic high priest. That is, he can understand, he can relate to us. Hebrews 7 tells us he is a capable high priest. And Hebrews 10 tells us that he offered the perfect sacrifice himself. Jesus is our high priest, and he has made us a priesthood. As priests, we are supposed to offer up spiritual sacrifices. What are these spiritual sacrifices? Romans 12.1 says we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Hebrews 13.15 and 16 says we are to offer our praise and our possessions as sacrifice. So as priests, we are to offer our person, our praise, and our possessions to God. Jesus Christ is our high priest, and we are a priesthood. A third picture of our relationship with Jesus is the metaphor of the vine and the branches. This picture, used in John 15, is maybe the greatest picture of the Christian's identification with Christ found anywhere in the Bible. The emphasis of this metaphor is that the very life of Jesus Christ flows through us. And when we allow that to happen, then we are fruitful. The two key words in John 15, where this metaphor occurs, the two key words are abide and fruit. That's the reason we exist as a branch. A branch has no other purpose except to bear fruit, but that only happens when we abide. If we cut off his life flow, then we become fruitless. If we squeeze the Lord out of our lives by filling up our lives with so many other pursuits, then we become fruitless. The relationship between the vine and the branches is a beautiful picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. A fourth picture of our relationship with the Lord Jesus is the analogy of the head and the body. By the way, it's interesting to note that Israel was never called a body. Never. 
This is a metaphor that is exclusive to the church. Israel is a nation. The church is a body. Christ is our head. The book of Colossians emphasizes the headship of Christ. The book of Ephesians emphasizes the body of Christ. But both letters teach this concept thoroughly. Colossians 1.18 says of Christ, He is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 1.22 says, God gave Christ or appointed Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Beloved, this is a truth that the church of Jesus Christ today needs to get a fresh grip on. We've lost sight of the fact that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. No person is the head of the church. No board is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He calls the shots by his word. What the church is to do should not be determined by popular opinion or by majority vote or by the desires or whims of society. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he has made it clear in his word what he wants his church to be and how he wants his church to function. A fifth picture of our relationship with the Lord Jesus is the picture of the cornerstone and the building. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the focus for the direction of all the other stones. All the other stones are lined up with the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the building, and all of us who have believed in him are living stones that make up this building. A sixth and final picture of of our relationship with the Lord Jesus is the picture of the bridegroom and the bride. Jesus used this metaphor in John 14, and Paul used it in Ephesians 5. The emphasis of this metaphor is the final consummation of our relationship with Christ. One day we will be with him forever in eternity. This picture also emphasizes Christ's great love for us as his bride. These are six pictures of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, and two of them are found in our text this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's turn there together over near the end end of the New Testament to the letter we have been studying in recent weeks, 1 Peter, last Lord's Day We moved into chapter 2, and our text this morning is verses 4 through 10. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious." 
But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. If you have been with us throughout this series, then you may recall that Peter opens his letter by describing our priceless salvation. That is found in the opening nine verses of chapter 1. Those are rich verses describing many of the facets of our salvation. Based on those truths, Peter gives three responses in the form of three exhortations. The first response is given in chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. In those verses, Peter tells us what our response ought to be toward God, and the exhortation is to be holy. The second response given is our response toward others in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, and the exhortation there is to love. So our response toward God is holiness, our response toward others is love, and our response toward ourselves is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That's the text we looked at in the last message, and we saw that the main exhortation is in verse 2, the exhortation, the command, desire the word. Crave pure spiritual milk. So Peter has described what God has done for us in salvation, and then he outlines our practical response. Having done that, He now returns to the subject of God's mercy granted to us in salvation. That is presented in the verses we just read. By the way, this is somewhat of a pattern or a cycle in Peter's letter. You'll notice notice it as we continue our way through it in the weeks to come, Lord willing. He talks about some of the marvelous things God has done for us in salvation. And then coming off of that, he delineates what our response ought to be. That's his pattern or his cycle throughout this letter. So in the verses we just read, Peter tells us what a privilege it is to be in the family of God. In fact, the the, the last word, that last word in verse 10 is the word mercy. The reason why we are included in the body of Christ, the reason why we are included in the family of God is because of God's mercy. He has shown us undeserved compassion by bringing us into his family. And that is what Peter describes in this text before us. Notice how he begins in verse 4. He says, Coming to him, that is to the Lord Jesus, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. In the previous verse, Peter alluded to Psalm 34, 8, which says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Peter quotes loosely Psalm 34, 8 and applies that statement to the Lord Jesus. O taste and see that he's good. 
Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So in verse 3, Peter depicts salvation as tasting Christ's goodness and trusting in him. He is good and he is trustworthy. However, most people in our society don't agree with that assessment. You know this is the case. You have friends, family members, co-workers, teammates, people all around you who do not agree with that assessment. Most people in our world have rejected him instead of cherishing him. That's why Peter says that he is rejected by men, referring to Jesus, he is rejected by men but chosen by God. Most people don't choose to trust in and cherish the Lord Jesus. But he is God's chosen and precious stone. Notice that Peter refers to Jesus as a living stone. Jesus is the cornerstone, but he is not a dead stone. He is not an inanimate stone. He is a living stone. Stones aren't alive, but this stone is. Jesus is the living cornerstone. Most people don't choose him, but God has chosen him. Most people don't consider him precious, but God considers him precious. And those of us who do choose him and consider him precious are also living stones. Verse 5, Peter says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When Peter, in the first part of this verse, mentions the fact that we are living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house, it is obvious that he thinks immediately about the temple. And when he thinks about the temple, he shifts his metaphor right in the middle of this verse from living stones to a holy priesthood. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are a holy priesthood. Now, I realize that this isn't a picture with which we are naturally familiar. Not in our culture, not as Gentile people. We aren't Jewish, and we weren't raised in a context of going to the temple on a regular, consistent basis to offer sacrifices. But this is something that Peter's readers would have identified with immediately. They understood the priesthood. And all that was involved in it, they understood the continual practice of offering sacrifices because their lives revolved around that ceremony. God made sure their lives revolved around that because he required Jewish males within a certain distance from uh, the temple to come three times a year to the temple at least. Even if you were some distance, if you were within the certain radius, you had to come to the temple. So Peter's readers understood this picture. However, once Jesus offered himself as the perfect and final sacrifice, the sacrificial system was rendered obsolete. Now there is no need to offer bulls and goats and birds as sacrifices. Instead, we offer spiritual sacrifices. Romans 12.1 says we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 says we are to offer our praise and our possessions as a sacrifice. So as priests, 
We are to offer our person, our praise, and our possessions to God. We are a priesthood, and we are a spiritual house composed of living stones. Peter resumes that metaphor in verse 6. He says, Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. That is a quote from Isaiah 28, 16. And Peter inserts it here to make the point that it was pre-planned by God that Jesus the Messiah would be the chief cornerstone. That is not a position that Jesus usurped. That is not a position he assumed on his own. This was something foreordained by God and accomplished by him through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone was the the major stone that was set down. As part of the foundation, it supported the superstructure. And because of its key position, the cornerstone determined the shape of the building as the walls had to conform to its angles and its lines. Every block in the building had to be in, in alignment with the one cornerstone. So the cornerstone was the support, it was the unifier, the connector, the strength giver. It was everything in the building. That is the position occupied by the Lord Jesus Christ in this spiritual house that God is building. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and that is why, as this quote says, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. The obvious implication of that statement is that those who refuse to embrace him are going to be ashamed when they stand before God. I can't imagine what that will be like. I cannot fathom what it will be like for those who stand before God someday in utter shame for refusing to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, there are no words to describe the regret that will be in their hearts. No words. I hope that's not the case with any of you here today. The Lord Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and as such, he is the great divider of all humanity. That's what Peter declares in the next verse. He says in verse 7, Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient or those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This verse is telling us, as many verses in Scripture do, that Jesus is the great divider of all humanity. He cuts cuts humanity right down the center, and all people fall into one of two categories. There are those who believe in Jesus, and there are those who do not believe in Jesus. There are those who are obedient to Him, and there are those who are disobedient to Him. There are those who believe in Jesus, and are, those who do believe in Jesus and are obedient to Him consider Him precious, but to the rest of mankind, Jesus, frankly, is just a nuisance. It's just a hassle. He is a stone that is to be tossed aside Now you need to picture ancient buildings built of stone and a lot of workers working around uh, being delivered stones from a stone quarry or maybe gathering them from around them. 
And, and this, the picture is that all of these people looking for good stones, smooth stones, ones that will work. And Peter reminds us here with this quote that for most people, Jesus is just a stone to be tossed aside. That's why Peter quotes Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Think about the imagery of that quote. It pictures people in society as builders, people in our, in our world as builders, who have tossed aside a rock that they consider to be useless. They throw aside a rock they consider to be a waste of time, not worth the effort. Their opinion is that all of the other stones in life are far more important or are far more valuable. However, God's assessment is what really matters. And he has taken the stone that was rejected, the stone that was thrown aside, and he has made it the chief cornerstone. As a result, for most people, the chief cornerstone is not something precious. The chief cornerstone is something damning. Peter says in verse 8, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. The first part of this verse is a quote from Isaiah 8.14. The imagery behind these phrases is very powerful. Let me see if I can describe it. A stone of stumbling is basically what it says. It was a rock. uh, It was something that people tripped over and fell. In other words, you're walking along in a field or on a path, and there's a rock sticking up you don't see. You catch your foot, and you fall. That's a stone of stumbling. A rock of offense was a massive rock upon which people were dashed and broken into pieces. So the idea is this. Jesus is a rock in the path of those who reject him, And when they trip over him and fall head first, they are dashed upon a huge rock that breaks them to pieces. It's not a pleasant picture, but it's what happens, spiritually speaking, to those who reject the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, but people will end up there because they refuse to believe. Oh, they they may believe in an intellectual sense, you know, some type of mental assent, but they they won't believe with the kind of faith that results in obedience. That's why Peter says here, they stumble being disobedient to the word. Notice that Peter uses the word disbelieve and disobedient interchangeably in this passage. Because genuine faith issues forth in obedience, and disobedience is what characterizes unbelief. Sadly, that is the vast majority of humanity. Most people do not. You know this. Most people in our society, most people in your circle probably, most people do not obey the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, most people don't even know what he said. They haven't even bothered to take the time to see what he said to disobey it. They just completely ignore him. For them, Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They want to go merrily on their way, doing their own thing, 
not being hassled, but the demands of Jesus, which they don't even see, trip them up, and they fall on the rock of offense that dashes them to pieces. And then Peter adds the last phrase in this verse, in verse 8, to which they also were appointed. It is extremely important that we do, do not misunderstand or misinterpret or misrepresent this phrase from the verse. That would be a grave mistake. Peter is not saying here that people were predestined to unbelief and disobedience. People don't have to be predestined to unbelief and disobedience because that's what we all do naturally. We don't need any help to be that way. God doesn't have to do anything for us to be that way. So what is Peter saying here? A study note in my Bible explains it this way, quote, These were not appointed by God to disobedience and unbelief. Rather, these were appointed to doom because of their disobedience and unbelief. Judgment on unbelief is as divinely appointed as salvation by faith, end quote. That says it well. A few moments ago, I quoted Jesus from Matthew 25, 41, where he says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus made it clear that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. But people will go there. People will end up there because of their unbelief and disobedience. Instead of embracing Jesus as their precious chief cornerstone. Most people reject him, and he is to them a rock of offense. The contrast comes in the next verse, verse 9. But, here's the contrast, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This verse delineates the privilege that is ours to be in the family of God. It's as if Peter just piles up these descriptive phrases to try to get us to understand and appreciate what a priceless privilege it is to be in the family of God. Notice what he says. First, he says we are a chosen people. Just as God chose the people of Israel in the Old Testament to be his chosen people, so also he has chosen those of us who are in Christ to be in his family. It's important for Peter to emphasize this point coming off of verse 8, because it would be very easy for us to look down on unbelievers as if we are somehow inherently better than they are. What I mean is, we might be tempted to think, after reading verse 8, we might be tempted to think those foolish unbelievers, look how stupid they are. I'm glad I'm not like they are. I'm glad I was smart enough to believe in the Lord Jesus. Beloved, you weren't smart enough to believe in the Lord Jesus. You weren't smart enough or wise enough or good enough or anything enough. Don't forget the last word of verse 10, the last word of this paragraph, mercy. Your salvation and my salvation is all because of God's mercy. He chose us to be his people, as Peter states in this first phrase. The next phrase refers to us as a royal priesthood. 
Peter already mentioned this back in verse 5, but he repeats it again because we ought to be amazed, beloved, that God allows us, all of us, to be such. Back in the Old Testament times, as you may know, there were strict regulations for who could be a priest and who could not be a priest. The qualifications were stringent. And it would be safe to say that not a one of us in this room would make the cut. There could be no blemish on your body, no scar, no, no any. I mean, there were a lot of strict regulations. Not a one of, in this, uh, of us in this room would make the cut. But now that we are in Christ, we are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament period, God's people had a priesthood. But today, God's people are a priesthood. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we reject all religious systems, even if they call themselves Christians, all religious systems that still practice a priesthood. And there are many in our world today. That is completely unbiblical. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we are all a royal priesthood. Then, the next phrase, Peter calls us a holy nation. This is not referring to one nation, such as America or Canada or Germany or China. Peter is simply using an analogy. Several places in the New Testament, the church is described as a group of people who have been redeemed out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. So the church today is not one national entity. The church is composed of all sorts of national entities. The family of God today doesn't only come from one nation, but there's a sense in which all of us together are a holy nation. We are, we are a unique nation in that our citizenship is in heaven, according to Philippians 3.20. This world is not our home. We are only passing through. In verse 11, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, in verse 11, Peter is going to appeal to us as sojourners and pilgrims. That is a reminder to us that this world is not our home because, hear this, our identity is not as Americans or Europeans or Africans or Asians. Our, our identity as, is as citizens of heaven. And that's why the next phrase tells us that we are God's special possession or God's special people. Think about the imagery of that phrase. God owns everything in this universe. Everything. So there's a sense in which you can say that everything in this world is God's possession. He owns it all. It belongs to Him. But those of us who are in Christ are God's possession in a very unique way. He bought us with the precious blood of His Son, and we are His special people. Now understand, we are not special because of ourselves. Contrary to the you know, modern-day self-esteem movement. That's not what this is saying. We are special because of God's work in us and His grace to us. That's what makes us special. Apart from His grace, we are vessels of wrath. Scripture is clear on that. Dead in sin, totally depraved. But His work on our behalf brings us into this special relationship with Him. Why these privileges? Why has God showered these privileges on us? 
they're not simply for us to enjoy. There is a responsibility that comes with this privileged position. The last phrase in verse 9 says, here's the purpose, so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has called us out of darkness for this purpose, beloved, to represent him. We are supposed to represent the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why we are called Christians. That word basically means a follower of Christ or a little Christ. How are you doing in that regard? A little Christ. When people look at you, do they see the character of Christ? They should. That's our responsibility. That's our mission. That's our purpose. God has showered on us immense privileges, and these privileges bring about an immense responsibility. And beloved, we should never forget that. Never. In our self-centeredness, we easily think that our salvation is all about us, but it's not all about us. We think that the reason God saved us is to take us to heaven, to give us an eternal home. Listen, God didn't save us merely to take us to heaven because if he did, we'd be there already. As soon as he saved us, he would just take us to heaven. God saved us and left us here to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's your job, my job, your role, my role, all of us. And remember, it's not only our words It's also our lives. We don't merely share the message. We are the message. It's who we are. It's what we are. People should see a difference in our lives, a difference in our speech, a difference in our actions, our attitudes, our reactions, our words. That's why God has saved us. And that is now, or at least it ought to be, our main mission in life. Whatever else we do by way of vocation, whatever else we do by way of hobby, whatever else we do uh, by way of activity, our main mission at the core is to represent Christ. And if we aren't already motivated to carry out that mission, verse 10 gives us further incentive. Verse 10 says, Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This was our condition as Gentiles. The vast majority of us in this room, the vast majority are Gentiles. Maybe a few Jewish people uh, scattered among us, but this is referring to our condition as Gentiles. Not only were we dead in trespasses and sins, We were outside of God's covenant with the people of Israel. That was our condition. Ephesians 2.12 says that at, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were without Christ, that verse says, which means we had no hope of the Jewish Messiah. I mean, read the Old Testament. The Messiah was promised to the Jewish people. That's why when Jesus came and he sent the disciples out on their first short-term mission in Matthew 10, he said, don't go to any Gentiles or Samaritans. Only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
That's where we're starting because that's who had this promise of a Messiah. Now, by the time you get to the end of Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. But the Messiah was a promise to the Jewish people in Hebrew Scripture. So we were without Christ, which means we had no hope of the Jewish Messiah. We were without citizenship, which means we didn't belong to the nation of Israel. We were without the covenants of promise, which means the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, were with the people of Israel. We were without hope. I mean, if you don't have a Messiah, and you don't have a kingdom, and you don't have any promises, you don't have any hope. That's pretty obvious. And if all that isn't bad enough, the last phrase of Ephesians 2.12 says, without God in the world. Gentiles, especially under the Old Testament, during the Old Testament times, they were without the true God. They didn't know Yahweh, the God of Israel. They believed in a multiplicity of gods, the God of rain, the God of sunshine, the God of fertility, the God of the crops, the God of the land, the God of all of that. God of the mountains, God of the valleys, without God in the world. Not even an understanding of the true God. That's the former condition of all of us as Gentiles. We were not only dead in sin, but alienated from access to the truth that could deliver us from sin. In that condition, what do we need most? We need the last word in this verse. Mercy. That's what we need. In that condition, we need mercy. And that's what God has given us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Have you received that mercy? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have not, I urge you to do so. I urge you with all that's in me to do so today. Let's bow together in closing prayer. And please bow your head and close your eyes for just a final couple minutes that we have here together this morning. And think about what you have seen in God's Word this morning, what you have heard, what you have grappled with in your own heart and mind. First of all, I ask you, since Jesus is the divider of all of humanity, which category are you in? The category of those who believe, the category of those who don't believe, the category of those who obey, the category of those who are disobedient. The category of those who consider Jesus precious or the category of those who thinks he's just a nuisance. He's just an intrusion in life. They want nothing to do with him. Which category are you in? You're in one or the other. Jesus divides humanity right down the middle. Scripture says, whoever believes in him will by no means be put to shame. When you stand before God, Someday, are you going to be able to do so without any shame or any concern about whether or not you will be granted entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Or are you going to stand before God someday in utter shame because you lived your life pursuing everything else under the sun but not pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you stand before God someday without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll be utterly shamed totally shamed. If you are a child of God, do you know what your mission is? Have you lost sight of it? 
has it become cluttered by other things? Or do you realize that your mission is to represent, to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? When you get up in the morning, is that your thought? Whatever I do today, Lord, whether I go to work, go to class, go to practice, go to whatever, whatever I do today, I want to represent Jesus Christ. Is that really your thought, your focus from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed? I want to represent Christ in my home, in my school, in my dorm room, in my business, in whatever. That should be your focus. If it's not, then get refocused now, today, to represent the one who has redeemed you and called you out of darkness. Father, this is such a powerful section of your word, seeing these word pictures that just jump off the page at us. And how, how descriptive is this text, telling us that for most people, Jesus is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. It's so tragic. We see this in our world, and it grieves us. We, we see it in society. We see it all around us in uh, in our co-workers, in, in, in our, in our uh, fellow uh, students, in, in our, our classmates, our teammates, our family even. It's just so, so tragic to see people going merrily on their way. And one day they're going to be tripped up by the Lord Jesus and be dashed to pieces on the rock of offense. But Father, for those of us who know and love your Son, to us he is precious. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the one uh, in alignment with we build our lives. The one we take our cues from. We take our direction from. And may we remember that it is our goal in life, our mission in life, our calling in life to represent him in all that we are, in all that we do, in every activity, in every relationship. May we represent the Lord Jesus well. For we pray these things in his precious, wonderful name. Amen.